This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is Moline Kang, and I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Emory University School of Medicine. Today, I'm joined by Drs. Aparna Swaminathan, who is the first author of the paper, External Control Arms in Idiopathic Pulmonary Fibrosis Using Clinical Trial and Real-World Data Sources, which was recently published in the Blue Journal, and Dr. Timothy Dempsey, who co-wrote the associated editorial. Dr. Aparna Swaminathan is an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University School of Medicine. Aparna, welcome. Thanks for having me. Dr. Timothy Dempsey, who is an United States Air Force pulmonary and critical care physician practicing in Northern California and a research affiliate at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Dempsey, also welcome. Thanks. Happy to be here. All right. Well, let's get started and right into it. Timothy, if you want to We'll start our discussion off by reviewing the state of the randomized control trials in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and some challenges in conducting trials, especially in the era of antifibrotic therapies. Sure. So let's start with the challenges of conducting a randomized trial for any disease. As we know, traditional randomized control trials are the gold standard for evaluating drug efficacy. However, randomized control trials are really hard to run they're expensive, they can be inefficient, and they often lack generalizability to patients outside of the tightly controlled study environment. In part because of these issues, we never have enough traditional randomized control trials. You know, as a pulmonary and critical care physician, I'm often pretty jealous of our cardiologist colleagues because they run these huge trials and seemingly get definitive hard outcomes for all of their diseases. But there was actually a study a few years back in JAMA that looked at how uh, many American College of Cardiology guidelines were based on randomized trial data. Only 11% were based on multiple RCTs or meta-analyses, and 39% were based on a single RCT or non-randomized study. That leaves 50% to be supported by expert opinion or case studies. Not great. These problems are compounded when you're trying to design trials for a rare heterogeneous and dead disease like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is part of the reason we only have two FDA approved medications in the antifibrotic drugs perfinidone and intenitive. Though the data supporting the efficacy or uh, the effectiveness of the antifibrotics for both IPF and other forms of fibrotic lung diseases are growing, we know these medications cannot stop or reverse fibrosis. They have a high rate of adverse effects and they could be quite expensive. All this to say, we urgently need more drugs with superior e efficacy, improved tolerability, and reduced costs for our patients. But the antifibrotics are considered the standard of care for many. So any drug we run in IPF to try to improve overall patient outcomes needs to consider things like, is it ethical to even run the trial as placebo-controlled? What are the drug-to-drug -drug interactions and potentiation of side effects for the drug being studied on background antifibrotic therapy? Will this drug replace antifibrotic therapy or will it simply be used as an add-on therapy? I could go on and on, 
And for the listeners, there's a, there's a nice paper from the Blue Journal in 2019 by Keener and colleagues that discuss these issues in depth. So given these challenges I just outlined with traditional RCTs in IPF and the potential need to incorporate antifibrotic therapies into studies moving forward, we're going to need to start thinking differently. We're going to need innovative approaches to trial designs to accomplish our goal. Things like adaptive trials, Bayesian analysis, external controls, which is where this really nice study comes in. Perfect segue into the study that we're discussing today. So Perna, your study tried to address these issues by developing external cohorts for IPF. Please describe the treatment arm and which external cohorts were used for this study. The treatment arm for this study consisted of patients who were treated with BMS 986020. This medication is a novel lipophosphatidic acid receptor 1 antagonist. It was evaluated in a phase two trial that occurred between 2013 and 2016. And so in, in that trial, treatment with BMS 986020 did reduce the rate of lung function decline, but the trial was stopped early due to hepatobiliary toxicity. The traditional placebo arm from that phase two trial was the concurrent control in our study. And then, like you mentioned, we developed external controls. So external controls were drawn from either the placebo arms of the historical IPF-NET clinical trials or two different real-world data sources, which were patients with IPF who were enrolled in the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation registry or patients with IPF um, who were seen at, at Duke and, and we used their EHR data. We did have pre-specified criteria for selection of these candidate data sources from which we drew external controls which were they needed to have a U.S. population of patients with IPF. They needed to longitudinally collect outcomes of interest, um, which in our case was forced vital capacity, hospitalization, and death, and have at least 26 weeks of follow-up. And then for clinical trials in particular, we necessitated at least 40 participants who were on placebo and focused on trials that were contemporary to the BMS 986020 trial. So just to remind our audience, the IPF-NET trials came out, were done mostly in the early 2000s and were published uh, thereafter. So I remember the paradigm changing trial was the Panther IPF trial. And then, of course, there's the ACE IPF and STEP IPF trials. And I so you used all three to create an external cohort. But then you also used the PFF registry in Duke Electronic Medical Health Record to create real-world cohorts as well. That seems like a daunting task. So how did you really develop these? And just tell us how, how did you make sure that these cohorts were suitable for as an external cohort? It's a good question. Um, and our approach to developing these external controls Aligned with uh, recommendations that were recently put forth by the FDA, which is for anyone interested in, in that kind of work, was published in 2003. And so first we applied verification checks, just data verification checks to all data sources, which were conformance, meaning do the structures of the data conform to expected standards, completeness, which is really just what it sounds like, and then plausibility, which is looking at the believability of data values based on the contextual knowledge that we have as clinicians. 
Next, we evaluated the comparability of the different data sources. And we're specifically focused on things like the diagnostic criteria for IPF in each data source. Is that comparable across sources? Time periods. What are the concomitant treatments patients are receiving in each data source? What are their prognostic characteristics? And, and is there a way we can balance them? And then outcome assessment, like the, both the timings of that and then methods of how they assessed each outcome. We next took the inclusion and exclusion criteria from the BMS 986020 trial and applied them to each external control data source in, in order to increase comparability. I'll mention that in the real world data sources to make sure that we were able to have a comparable outcome assessment, similar to the BMS 986020 trial, we necessitated that participants need to have at least one follow-up FVC measurement within 35 weeks. Well, that sounds a lot of checks and balances in place. And I've read the article and the supplementary information that contains a lot of the details about this. So how many patients did your study include? And do you think the cohorts were similar in the end? So the active treatment arm of patients treated with BMS 986020, 600 milligrams twice daily, included 48 patients. And the concurrent controls, which was that BMS placebo arm, it consisted of 47 patients. In terms of the external controls that were drawn from the placebo arms of prior RCTs, from ACE IPF, there were 36 patients. STEP IPF, there were 17 patients. And, and Panther IPF had 107 patients who met all these criteria. And then in terms of external controls from the real world data sources, from the EHR data, there were 710 patients. And then from the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation Registry, there were 413 patients. I will be interested in both of your opinions about whether you thought the characteristics of how similar or different the characteristics of patients were, but there were a lot of similarities between the treatment arm, concurrent control, and external control. So, you know, especially in terms of their age, baseline FVC percent predicted, baseline DLCO percent predicted, there were some differences in race and sex that are worth mentioning in that the BMS 986020 trial did have a higher proportion of non-white participants compared with all the external controls. And the EHR external control had a higher proportion of female patients. And, and of course there's differences like you had mentioned in the concomitant antifibrotic treatment in that patients in the BMS 986020 trial and in the IPF net external controls none of them were taking antifibrotics, whereas about half the patients in the EHR external control and about 80% of patients in the PFF registry were exposed to antifibrotics at some point, either at baseline or during follow-up. And to try and account for this, we did do a sensitivity analysis in the EHR external control where we only included patients who were not exposed to antifibrotic therapies. And I think I would add that the sensitivity analysis found no difference from the main trial results, which we will go into shortly. Timothy, any opinions on the cohorts and how they were created and verified? I thought she nailed it. It's the randomized control, internal controls, I thought met, lined up really well. Initially, when I went through this, my my first thought with the real world was, you know, of course, there wasn't a difference because a lot of these people were on antifibrotic therapy. 
and it, it is similar to the cleanup IPF study that allowed randomized trial that allowed background antifibrotic therapy. They had very similar results. So the sensitivity analysis was huge. And I, I think it was really important and really well done and really added to the robustness of their findings. I agree. I think very well designed study. And to take one step further, Perna, so how did you analyze and compare these cohorts now that you've built these very well-defined cohorts and tried to make them as similar as you can with a very comprehensive inclusion and exclusion criteria? How did you analyze them and then pair them? Well, first, we tried to increase patient homogeneity across data sources even further, um, particularly given some of the differences in race and sex that we had mentioned. And, and so we had estimated what we termed as balancing scores, which was done using a logistic regression model to estimate the probability of enrollment in the BMS 986020 trial amongst putting all data sources together. And this included covariates that were had previously been associated with death or progression in patients with IPF and also included demographics too. And so patients in external controls who had balancing scores that fell outside of the range of scores that participants in that BMS 986020 trial had were excluded. So patients in external controls with really high or really low balancing scores were excluded. And our, our primary outcome uh, just to mention was the rate of change in FVC from baseline to 26 weeks, which was consistent with the original BMS 986020 randomized controlled trial. And secondary outcomes included a composite of time to progression that included 10% FVC decline, lung transplant, or death. And so when we compared the outcomes between each treatment and external control pair, we did apply inverse probability weighting to account for the probability of treatment assignment, since we didn't have the ability to, to randomize patients to the medication or control. And these inverse probability weights were calculated with the logistic regression model that used those same covariates um, in the previous model. Wonderful. And then what did you find for your, for your results? So first, when we compared rates of FVC decline between the treatment and concurrent control arms, we found that patients who were treated with BMS 986020 did have a significantly slower rate of decline in FVC and FVC percent predicted over 26 weeks. So this replicated the results of the original BMS 986020 trial. Next, we compare rates of decline between treatment and external controls drawn from the IPF net RCTs and found that patients treated with BMS 986020 similarly had a slower rate of decline in FVC and FVC percent predicted compared with the RCT external controls. So this resulted in treatment effect point estimates that fell within that 95% confidence interval of the original trial. And, and so in, in other words, the treatment effect was reproduced when external controls from randomized control trials were used. In contrast, when we compared rates of FVC decline between treatment and external controls drawn from real-world data, the treatment effect of BMS 986020 was not reproduced. The rate of FVC decline over 26 weeks in patients in both the PFF registry external control and the EHR external control was slower than patients in the RCT external controls 
and really was pretty similar to patients who were treated with the medication, resulting in a difference that was not within that 95% confidence interval of the original trial. And like you've mentioned before, while some of this may be due to the antifibrotic therapy that a lot of these patients were on, when you did the sensitivity analysis, including patients who were only, who were not exposed to antifibrotics at all, you found similar results. Timothy, why do you think we found this difference in the real world cohort where FVC decline is just slower and comparable to almost a treatment arm, even when you account for the antifibrotic therapy? Yeah, I think the initial the initial finding you could chalk up to the the antifibrotics potentially if that sensitivity analysis wasn't there. You know, the sensitivity analysis finding wasn't super surprising to me, but it was pretty disappointing. So I think the differences are probably related to missing data. PFET data and electronic medical records are really hard to come by right now. It's getting a little bit better in some of these data sets. The registry data does not have as much missing data. So, uh, you know, that may not be playing as big of a role. You know, the other thing is patients outside of the trial environment are different than those in the real world. I think there was a paper recently that was cited in the, in, in the manuscript that, that showed that the vast majority of people who are on treatment right now would not be eligible for these trials. So, you know, in addition to people being different outside of a trial environment, people who are on therapy tend to be different than people who are not treated. So patients who, who are not eligible for treatment can sometimes be different as well. So those are some of the potential differences. My hope is that there's a way to work this out so that real world data sets can serve as external controls in the future. Because you know, when you look at the number of patients in each arm, it, you, it goes up exponentially when you're able to include these people in the real world. And so I think it was mentioned like overlap weighting or other statistical methods that could potentially emulate these trials a little bit better would be really, really good. And I think the F there's a group with the FDA that's, that's working on this sort of thing right now in, in many disease states, and hopefully IPF gets in there soon. Burnett, since he brought up the issue with missingness, did you, I know you looked at completeness of data, but did you find a lot of missingness in real world cohorts? I would expect just thinking about it, the answer would be yes, but was it more than you expected, general, comparable? I think where we, what we found the trickiest was informative missingness in terms of like people who are just getting sicker and so they're not coming back for their FEC assessment because they are, are getting sicker. And so it just, we may miss worsening in, in that way. And, and also irregular FEC assessments in terms of like in a trial, they're getting it every you know, 12 weeks, every, every X number of weeks. Whereas in, in real world data, really, it's just based on clinical practice, how the patient's feeling. Maybe they're just feeling really well. And so not coming back for their PFT, or maybe they're feeling terrible. And, and so just not coming back for their PFT or, or, or perhaps because they died, which was part of our rationale for also wanting to include secondary outcome that included death given the informative missingness. But but I think your question as to whether, and if the question is whether the PFT was done and we didn't have access to it in our real world data, I, I think that is less likely because um, the Duke, we, we were able at, from the Duke HR, we get the PFTs just right from the source data. And, and so if it was done at Duke, we definitely had it. And then like you had mentioned, Timothy, the, the registry PFT data is, is fairly complete, but 
still many issues that we would need to kind of think through methods for for addressing. I agree. I think just missingness in general in real world data is harder to overcome, but also our clinical practice varies from provider to provider. It's not just how well the patient's doing, but what your practice is for repeating PFTs. Do you do it at every single visit that the patient's coming to see you? Is it every three months? Is it every six months? Maybe for patients who are declining or not doing so well, I may tend to see them more frequently, like every three months. But for patients who've been very stable, doing overall very well, maybe I'll see them every six months, but that's a difference of three months of PFT data. And are you repeating it at a regular interval? And what are, is it exactly the three-month time period that you're seeing it at? Is, it, is there a plus or a minus from that day? All of which can be accounted to a certain extent in statistical analysis, but certainly makes it much more difficult compared to RCT data. So- I mean, even, even some of the trials have different, you know, measurement length durations. And that, that makes doing this challenging even for randomized control trials. So, so no, I mean, it's a- uh, I, it was a really heavy lift for you guys to do this and you did it really well. So it, it made the time to event analysis kind of challenging to interpret because some, if you say time to 10% FVC decline, but some trials measure FVC earlier and then some measure FVC only for the first time again later. Um, it, it's, it's a biased, it's a biased analysis. So real world data then Still, maybe not the most impressive results here, uh, certainly concerns, but like you mentioned, Timothy, there are ways that maybe we can make this work in the future. Certainly, the FDA has granted approval to more than 45 new drugs using external cohorts. Um, but what do you think, other than just the issues with the EHR data that we have discussed recently, what do you think are some of the other challenges for using external cohorts for FDA approval of drugs? Is it not quite ready for prime time? And what can we do to get them there? I personally think we're there. It may be historical, you know, barriers more so than than really technical barriers, especially from the randomized control side. People want you to run a traditional randomized control trial, line them up, split them up and then run the study the standard way. And they may be a little hesitant to, to draw in some of these outside control arms. But, you know, oncology and cardiology are doing this currently. There was a study from 2022 in New England Journal that, that used Bayesian analysis for IPF and brought in some external controls. So I think it's ready. And I hope that you know, this is something that we can think about as, you know, ILT community moving forward, how we can start to think about ways to bring in real world data for these drug approvals as well. Because right, as it relates to IPF, with these antifibrotic therapies available, even if you believe they only have marginal benefits, and I think there's a, a good discussion to be had there, you're gonna need trials to enroll more and more patients to find smaller and smaller treatment effects when patients are on these, either profitidone or nintendive. So we need to find ways to get more patients. And sometimes that may not be at your, with your traditional randomized trial. Sometimes that may be with a registry if you can closely emulate that trial data. I also wanted to bring up this thought of randomized control trials, something that you started out with that 
the randomized control trial population is often not generalizable. And I do recall that PFF, the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation, has recently rolled out a community registry. Mm -hmm. So initially, the PFF registry contained data from all the PFF care center networks. So think uh, tertiary care centers where people like us are practicing. I have people with expertise in ILD where patients are getting referred to. Those were the participants of the registry. Now that they've ruled out this community care registry, there is data and opportunity to study patients who are not being followed in a tertiary care center necessarily, especially in rural areas of the country. And so being able to use that cohort and seeing if, as a comparison at least, and seeing if that can be effective going forward would be important. Yeah, I mean, for sure, that's really important. And just to kind of highlight the differences that you can find. Our group looked at the adoption of the antifibrotic therapies in a big data set, so including community and tertiary centers, and found that only about one in five people on the whole with IPF are prescribed the antifibrotic therapies. And that was backed up also by a VA study where I think like 17% were prescribed them. If you look at the registry data, you get what was found in this study, 80%. These tertiary care centers are are being prescribed these medications. So huge, huge differences and disparities that really, you know, should be evaluated. Which I think brings me to the point of, you know, the current therapies. So certainly antifibrotics have side effects. And I think the guidelines recommend discussion with your patient before prescribing these medications, because for I work at the VA and I've looked at that study too, showing the disparity. And, but sometimes, you know, quality of life for patients is an important issue. Some of the GI side effects, especially with nintenanib, have made people question whether they want to start on it right away or maybe hold off and just monitor the disease with PFTs and see if there if there is progression and maybe then start therapy and not start right off the bat. So there is concern with the side effects of it. And like you said, we need newer and more efficacious therapies to come online for that. But there's also been a lot of talk about using FVC as an endpoint, especially with the FDA asking for outcomes that are more important to patients. I'll I'll be the first one to say, I don't think my patients care as much about the numbers in FVC. They really care about how they feel. And if they're feeling worse, um, the numbers sort of fall to the wayside. So Parna, any thoughts about FVC and, you know, maybe using more patient-reported outcome measures and how external cohorts might be able to help in that? I think it's a great question um, and a really interesting idea to try and look at things like the like the fitness of purpose, fitness for purpose framework of the patient reported outcome measures or and generalizability really with, with kind of the framework of external controls to, to look at some of the comparability of the patient reported outcome measures. You know, I think we'll still have some some of the challenges of FVC as a surrogate endpoint in terms of like the informative missingness and will still exist with the PROs. Or I think it's a really well taken point to, it's a tool that comes directly from the patient about the status of, of the patient and um, 
really valuable to look into further and, and think about how this framework could be applied to help bolster PROs as, as an endpoint in clinical trials. So I know IPFNet trials included some PRO data, including the UCSD shortness of breath questionnaire. There was also the SGRQ, the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire. Did the original trial with BMS 986020 include any patient reported outcome measures? It did. And, you know, interestingly, like you said, it SGRQ was included and some of the the timing of, of when SGRQ was collected varies with varies amongst the trials because some just do it in the beginning and the end, some do it in the middle, and or some will alternate PROs. I think it's an important thing to dig into in the future and, and to really, even if some assumptions are going to have to be made in decisions, to try, try and see how the changes compare across the different data sources. PFF collects some PROs too, and it's obviously not available in EHR data, which was one of the purposes that we did not consider it as an endpoint because it wasn't available everywhere, but. I agree. I, my local institution, PRO data is not available as part of the electronic health medical record. And I will say, as, as both of you can probably agree, in a busy clinic, it's even hard to collect some of these questionnaire data because they just have way too many questions. And so while it's easy enough to do in a randomized control trial setting, it's just so much harder to do it in clinical practice. So even if we, even if it were to become available as part of EHR data, I do not know that we currently have in my clinical practice a setup to collect that regularly on every single patient for every single visit that they're there. I'd love for it to happen, but it's just time constraints and just the clinic structure makes it very hard to get to that level of detail. And also, you know, there's there are only a couple of questionnaires that have been developed in patients with IPF. And so some of these legacy questionnaires, the SGRQ and UCSD shortness of breath questionnaires were not originally developed for IPF patients and may not be the most valid questionnaires for them. So there's still the need for more valid questionnaires. There are a couple now out there that you can use, but still the problem persists. You have a lot of questions and very little time. I think that as I am thinking about this, I think the the longitudinal validity question would be something that might be helpful to get at with, with external controls. But I agree with all of your points. These are super, super important tools and we need to figure out a way to get them incorporated more, both into clinical practice and on trials. So any closing thoughts? Where do you see this going into future? Any future plans with these external cohorts? Well, I think like was mentioned before, I think especially from external controls from RCTs seem like they have pretty good evidence to be used to at least supplement randomized control trials and the placebo arm and so be able to produce time of enrollment, time costs of RCTs all seem like really good things. And then, but further kind of both replication of this and determining what are the best methods to use external controls from real world data, like both of you have mentioned, I think are super important next steps. 
Yeah, I think it's an exciting time. There's a lot of innovative things out there, not just external controls, but the adaptive trials that are coming, that are being planned right now, like Remap ILD. And so, you know, stay tuned. Hopefully we're going to start getting some positive results here on therapeutic trials soon. Also, future is bright. We will end with that. So in closing, I would like to thank Drs. Swaminathan and Dempsey for this very interesting discussion. For our listeners, if you would like to read the article mentioned in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to the podcast and get notifications whenever new episodes are available. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.